Turn with me to Acts chapter 22, as we will look at the last verse of that chapter, and then the first 11 verses of Acts 23 this morning, as we continue to track Paul's um, arrest and trial and his defenses of himself. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at the text and ask for self with it. Our Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us clarity this morning. So many things can fog our understanding, our judgment, our wisdom, but you always present the truth in absolute clarity. And so, Lord, as we come this morning, we pray that you would show it to us in that way, that it would be a dividing Part to our souls, that it would show us our sin, that we would be convicted, and that it would lead us more and more to the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As I was preparing for this message, I read an article called uh, 25 Silly Things That Churches Fight Over. I know it's kind of weird preparation for this uh, particular passage. It was written by a man by the name of Tom Rainer, who's president of Lifeway and does a lot of research for churches. Pretty interesting stuff. As you might, might imagine, there are some very silly things in that uh, article. One of my favorites in one church, there was an argument over the appropriate beard length for the pastor, uh, that it should be no longer than one inch. Um, pretty crazy. I'd be out of a job fairly quick there. Uh, two deacons have, were caught sending anonymous letters to each other. I guess the, the contents of those letters were, were mean. And then they found out in the actual deacons meeting about each other. And then they decided to settle that in the parking lot. That was a silly thing. Uh, they argument over the budget being off by 10 cents. And it was settled with someone just getting a dime out of their pocket. Uh, two whole business meetings, like long business meetings, uh, to purchase a weed eater. Um, one group of people leaving a church over the switch to Starbucks over Folgers coffee in the morning. And then lastly, <clears throat> the one that really was funny to me was an argument over whether or not they should continue to sing happy birthday each Sunday during church. Because apparently some churches sing happy birthday every Sunday. Uh, kind of silly to me. Some of them are funny, uh, all of them very odd. Some of them could have just been handled with just a basic knowledge of Scripture. For instance, you know, like Aaron had a long beard, so that's okay. Or uh, it's not good to fight in the parking lot. For instance, that's good. Or singing songs in worship should be about Jesus and not about someone's birthday. It seems pretty simple. Others can just be used with common sense. Yes, it's okay to spend $120 on a weed eater. You know, simple things like that. In our text today, Paul is going to face his accusers yet again, but this time in a much more private setting. He'll be facing the Pharisees and Sadducees and others in a meeting with the Jewish ruling body called the Sanhedrin. This is Basically, kind of like the ruling elders of the Jewish people, so to speak. Once again, for charges he did not commit. And in this trial, Paul is going to present them with an issue that is worth dividing over. 
as opposed to beard length or weed eaters. It's something that's very important, and that's the resurrection. Is it real? Is it not? He's going to present them with that. There are lots of things that we should not divide over, but the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. And if we disagree with it, then you and you are on the other side of that dividing line, then that's not a good thing. It's just something that we do divide over. As we look at this text today, I want to consider how Paul deals with this divide in the Sanhedrin and how he is given a separate set of instructions then that deal with how we come together. So you have this kind of division, and then you have this coming together. Uh, So we'll look at those two main ideas, the great divide and then the great commission. And so with that, let's look at the text, Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 30. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 22, starting at verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order him to me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one of the that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So for a bit of background, I think it's important. Um, we haven't really, we've, we've talked about this some. We did go through the book of John and we dealt with the Pharisees there. But we haven't really talked about these divisions that exist in Jewish culture. And particularly in those days, not so much anymore, the, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 basically did away with all of these uh, distinctions. But we talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and I think it's important to get a better understanding of these groups. And especially as we deal with them today, just a quick overview. There's four main groups of the of Jewish Sex is how you can think of it there. And they're based like denominations found in ancient Judaism. The Pharisees, Sadducees, 
Zealots, and Essenes. The Pharisees, they're the most popular group, meaning not among us today, but back then they were the ones that everyone kind of looked up to. They were involved in many parts of Jewish life. They were very traditional, followed the Old Testament law as, a, as well as a set of their own oral traditions. The Pharisees have probably, their group, have probably the only one that actually survived to today. And what you would think of as Orthodox Judaism is really just an extension of that Phariseeism. The Sadducees believed in more of a, an aloof kind of God. They did not believe in the afterlife at all. There was no hope for the resurrection with them, no spirits, angels, any of that sort of thing. Uh, the Zealots were freedom fighters, I think is a good way to think of them. Many of them were the outlaws that are talked about in the book of Acts. They were there. They were causing trouble amongst the Roman soldiers, and they would actually go up and kill Roman soldiers uh, in order to incite riots and different things. And they resisted Roman rule with violence, oftentimes to, to their own demise. Well, actually, all the time to their own demise. Rome was a force to be dealt with, and the zealots didn't last much longer past the temple. And then the Essenes were a group that abstained from temple worship altogether. They were very strict, though, about the observance of the Sabbath law uh, and purification rites. They were kind of this exclusive group that was other than the other ones. They were a really hard group to join. And again, they didn't last very much further after 70 AD either. So why do we talk about these groups? Why is it important? I think it's important for us to understand that in any group of people, no matter who they are, there's going to be division. And there's going to be division about sometimes trivial things. And sometimes those divisions are going to be about very important things. And then the definition of what is important can be blurred oftentimes. For us, this is one reason why we as a church and denomination, ARP, claim the Word of God to be the only standard for faith and practice. Sure, we have other standards, like the Westminster documents. We read those every Sunday. We think they're a good source of truth. But they are just a shadow compared to Scripture and what Scripture gives us. They are used as a summary, but Scripture is the ultimate authority over our lives, over how we do church. So when we choose to divide, then we have to use wisdom. And that wisdom has to come from God's word. And those divisions that have issues have to have issues with scripture, not issues with tradition so much. I mean, it's not that we can't divide over those little things, but we have to use wisdom again. That doesn't mean that we can't have distinctives. We have to think about that, that aren't rooted in Scripture. But we just have to be careful with how tightly we hold to those distinctives. And I'll use this example again later. But, for instance, we serve communion every week here because we believe it's a good thing for the church. However, there's no biblical mandate to do that. The only mandate is to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, to do it often. The time interval is unspecified, but we have that as a distinctive here. Is it okay for us to do that? Yes. Should we exclude others because of it? No. 
And so that's kind of where we're at when we're talking about these divisions. As we dive in, this um, text is going to feature a very sharp division. And I think it's important for us to have a good framework of what those dividing lines look like before we get into that. With that, let's go to the first uh, point, the Great Divide. Look with me at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Makes me think of Jesus' words, oftentimes calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you, uh, you want me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So our text today begins with a very difficult section. Uh, Paul stands before the Sanhedrin. He's commanded the Sanhedrin actually is called by the Roman officials. This is kind of an unofficial meeting. The Romans got together and said, hey, you guys need to meet so that we can find out the real reason why Paul has been accused here because there didn't seem to be any validity to the charges that they had made before. And so Paul stands and begins his defense, and he does so by saying, I've done everything I'm supposed to be doing, and I stand before you in good conscience. And as he's saying these things, Ananias who was a high priest and who history has uh, spoke of Ananias as a very cruel man. Josephus said this of him, that he was violent, haughty, gluttonous, and rapacious man. And yet he was looked up to by the Jews. Interesting way of saying that. But this man who's standing there hears that Paul says, well, I believe that I've done nothing wrong. He says he has him be struck on the mouth which is what you would do to a liar. And so strike him on the mouth. And Paul quickly lashes back at him with an insult. Of course, we don't think of Paul at all as being slow-witted. Quite the opposite, I would think. And so he quickly comes back with a retort. Because this strike on the mouth was against the law. And here's a high priest saying, strike him on the mouth. And he's supposedly someone who's supposed to know the law and do well, but he's saying, strike him on the mouth. Remember, Jesus was struck in his meeting with the Sanhedrin. And what did Jesus do? He just asked, why did you do that? Why did you strike me? We quickly see a bit of remorse on Paul's part as he is kind of told, you know, you shouldn't have called out the high priest like that. You shouldn't have insulted him. And then he says, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. He's corrected This is a hard bit of text for me, to be honest. Uh, But the only hard part is the part of me that thinks Paul could really do nothing wrong in this situation where he's being accused of something he didn't do. And he's just simply insulting his accusers. That seems right to me. Admittedly, it's hard because I think Paul and I share this personality trait. Um, I would not want to be quiet in that situation either. I would want to defend myself and do so vigorously. I would have acted so in a similar way. So I kind of get that. In situations like this, though, we do need to be able to control our anger. And if you can't, you should probably remain quiet. 
Um, if you can, firm words. If you can control your anger, firm words might be the way to set the tone for the conversation. But again, I think this is a difficult text. I don't know why Paul says I don't didn't know he was the high priest. I would think that he should know that he was the high priest. So we can talk about this in Sunday school if you like. Pretty hard verses. We'll move on. So notice what Paul does next. He realizes this is probably going to get nowhere in this meeting. And so he appeals to the part of the Sanhedrin that he's familiar with by using something that he knows, that he agrees with, at least in part. And that is the idea of the resurrection. Look with me at verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect and to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He brings up the resurrection. He appeals to the portion of the Sanhedrin that he can maybe garner a little bit of support with them. Not being a Christian, uh, but being a former Pharisee, in Paul's case, is going to help him perhaps get some support. And it works. There's an argument. There's a lot of fuss, an uproar in this council chambers, wherever it is they meet. It kind of reminds me of Jesus' words to his followers as they're getting ready to go out and, and go out into the world and to tell about him. He calls them to be gentle as doves, yet wise as serpents, meaning that they shouldn't be looking for a fight But they should also be shrewd, understanding the situation and being able to take care of themselves. And I think Paul demonstrates that perfectly here. He's not going to get a fair trial with this group at all. So he appeals to the dividing line that is most important to him. The thing that matters most in the Christian life just happens to be a problem among the groups present here. Of course, they didn't believe in Jesus' role at all. But Paul obviously did believe in the resurrection of the dead and Jesus being the first fruits of that. And so he presents that to them as a problem. Due to this, the Romans see that Paul is probably going to be in the middle of a fight and get torn to pieces, as the text says. And so they remove him and carry him back to the safety of the barracks. So what do we do with this? It is highly unlikely that we are going to be captured by an opposing religion and have this kind of, and have to use this kind of cunning to outwit them. In our own lives, that is highly unlikely. But it is highly possible, or at least it should be, that we will be asked about the distinctives of our particular faith by people who we disagree with. And we'll need to know how to navigate those conversations. You've probably already had those conversations. If you haven't, you probably need to be talking more about your faith. Even more likely, again, we're going to be asked about, so what is Redeemer? What kind of distinctives do you have? You know, think about our own distinctives, the things that make us different, the things that when people come in and they say, that was different. We have a very orderly worship service. The bulletin basically looks the same every week. I think that's a good thing. That is a distinctive that we have. 
It's not necessarily a biblical thing that the bulletin looks the same every week and that your order of worship be very structured. We preach through books of the Bible because that's how we like to do it. That is a distinctive that we have that is ours. That's not a command that I do that. We have communion every week such as we've already talked about. How would you respond to someone when they said, you mean your worship service is so ordered that you don't allow the Spirit to move at all? Or doesn't communion get mundane and unimportant if you do it every week? I've heard both of these questions concerning our church, by the way. And there's a right way to answer them. If it's your personal conviction on these issues, and that's fine, it has to be your personal conviction. For instance, well, why do you preach through books of the Bible? Wouldn't it be better to hit the high points, is what one person said to me. And I I had trouble with that because I don't really know what the high points of Scripture are. Um, And I asked them and they didn't know either. But that was it's a personal conviction of mine that we do that. It's not explicitly commanded in Scripture, so we talked about it in a personal way. It wasn't a, look, this is what Scripture says. But the wrong way to do that is to be divisive. Have a non-teaching spirit about you. Not seeking to inform them, but seeking to shame them. It seeks to be right, rather than to teach someone. This is how we do things. It's not necessarily the only way, but this is how we do it. Instead, of, instead just say to them, no, this is how you should do it. Something that's not even commanded from Scripture. They may be coming to you wanting to learn. They may not be coming to you wanting to learn. They may be coming to you wanting to prove you long as wrong. But as far as it depends on you, what should you do? Be at peace with all people at all times. And if they want to escalate the conversation past something peaceful, then just walk away. These things that are not scriptural distinctives we just need to not have this problem with. We don't need to, there to be a clamor in the council chambers over something that doesn't really have a lot of scriptural importance. But what about those issues that are biblical, like the resurrection, for instance, or what is required for salvation? There's one that you've probably all had to deal with. What about that? What does baptism mean? What does the Lord's Supper mean? Who should be baptized? How do we answer those questions? Well, that's easy. We go to Scripture and we let it tell us what to do. Now, it's likely that the person that you're discussing this with may also go to Scripture with their own personal beliefs, which creates a great situation, right? Two people discussing the Bible together. What could be possibly wrong with that? Nothing. It's good. It's a good thing. If they're unbelievers, then just stick to the text. Stick to the Bible. The Bible has, its, has a way of its own. It is the very Word of God. It does not need us to present it. It presents and defends itself. It is quite capable on its own, and it always accomplishes the thing that it seeks to do. So just simply talking about the Scriptures is a real good thing. This is a call for us, brothers and sisters, to know our Bibles better and better each day. What if they're believers, though? What if you are speaking to a believer about an issue that you believe is here and it's plain, and they believe, no, it's over here and it's plain, and you have this disagreement? Will you still stick to the text? 
every time. With a believer, there are some issues that you'll, of course, agree on and you can hang your hat on. I can take any believer who's a believer of Jesus Christ and as a Presbyterian minister, it doesn't matter what denomination they're in, we can agree on certain things. We can agree on the Bible is God's word. We can believe or we can agree that Jesus is the savior of sinners. We can believe that we have a triune God that we worship. And so we hang our hat on those things together. And that's a good thing. And the things that you differ on, be charitable. There should not be a clamor in the council chambers over issues like baptism and other side issues. And I, and I call them side issues because they're not essential to our faith. What you believe on baptism is not going to get you saved or not. I guess unless you believe the baptism is what saves you, then that's a whole other issue. But no one wins favor with God because they've won an argument about predestination, for instance. However, you may lose favor with a friend if you win that argument. So wisdom and gentleness are important for us at all times. And that leads me to the second point, the Great Commission. Look with me at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is our Lord Jesus coming to Paul in the night, speaking to him in a vision of sorts. And he comes to him and says, you are indeed headed to Rome. And the things that you have testified all over the place about me, you're going to testify now in Rome. Paul has always wanted to go to Rome, right? This is a dream come true. Why? Because he loved the commission that the Lord had given to him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is what he he just can't wait to do, to go to those Gentile nations, to tell them about the Savior of the world, and he's going to do just that as he goes through this book. Reminds me of what Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Acts in verses in chapter one, verses eight and nine. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. Paul's already been out there, but he's going to go a lot further as he goes to Rome. Rome is literally the way to reach the entire known world. Because Rome was the center of the world at the time, if you think about it. It was a way to plant churches and train disciples and send out missionaries to the furthest corners of the globe, or at least the globe that they knew about. This trip to Rome sparks major growth in the church. Eventually, several hundred years later, is going to lead to Rome becoming a Christian empire, which of course basically charts the rest of world history at that point. As we get ready to embark ourselves on a new chapter in our own history, we're coming up on four years as a church in in January, and we're getting ready to move into a new place. How are we going to do this as we move into this new building out on on Doran Road? Are we thinking of it as a way to put more people in the seats simply for the sake of putting more people in the seats. Are we thinking of it as a validation? This is something I've personally struggled with. 
as a validation. Okay, look, we made it. We have our own place now. Now we're a real church. Is that what we're looking at it as? Or do we see it as a step in the process of Christ calling us to fulfill the Great Commission? And what is the Great Commission? It is not a dividing thing. It is a going out into the corners of the world and bringing all those who are His in. It is the opposite of division. We are planting ourselves permanently in a neighborhood that is almost as old as Murray itself. There's a mix of a lot of different kinds of people in that neighborhood. There's new folks who just moved in and have little kids, and then there's people who are literally living in the homes they were raised in. You missed that. There are a lot of young families that are transitioning to the stage where their kids are older and starting to be more independent. And we see that in our own church, right? Our kids are starting to grow and they're starting to be more independent. How can we be a light of the gospel to a community that looks just like that? That's an important question for us to answer. As Paul was going to Rome, he was thinking specifically about Rome. As we're going over there to Doran Road, we need to think specifically about that place that we are headed. Now let's be careful. The gospel message doesn't change at all, does it not? Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. He was risen from the dead so that they could have the promise of eternal life. That's the same message that we're always going to preach. But how do we take that same message to a new neighborhood? It's the same way that we preach it now. Simple, with clarity, with Christ at the center. We don't change what we're doing just because we're going someplace else. But we do need to consider the people that we're going to reach. No matter where we take the message and no matter who we preach it to, it's not going to change. Sinners still need Jesus and Jesus is the only way to have salvation. So in conclusion, we are called to take this message with us wherever we go. New building or not, we are called to preach the same message, even if the audience changes. So let us be a people who aren't afraid to hold on to our distinctives, but to do so with gentleness and with wisdom. And let us be a people who understand where the true dividing lines are and to preach the gospel with clarity to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray that you would help us in this task. We recognize so many times that we are more willing to divide than we are to call people together. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be about your work. And your work is making disciples of all nations. And so, Lord, help us to do just that as we move across town as we have a new place that you have so graciously provided us with. Lord, we pray that you help us to know how to act, but Lord, help us to understand that the message is the exact same, the truth of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.